So if you're a visitor here with us, please take a moment. There's the cards in the chairs in front of you. Fill one of those out. Place it in either one of the boxes uh, toward the back of the church or the offering plates as they go around at the end of the service. And we would appreciate that. Thank you. Um, meet meeting, men eat and talk. This Thursday, 6 p.m. here at the church. Guys, show up, man. It's a good time. Titus Two Women are is having an event on December 3rd from 3 to 5 p.m. Bring a book to exchange. Um, there's going to be a fellowship dinner at the church. I was going to say Heidenreich's house, but Tim would hit me. <laughs> um, at the church on December 10th after service, and there will be a sign-up sheet going around starting next week. Uh, um, youth group, Awanas, everything kicks back off again this Wednesday. We get back into our regular Wednesday night flow. So kids, be ready to go. Let's all stand and do our memory verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Philippians 4, 6. Father, we just uh, thank you for this time that we can gather together uh, to worship you. Father, we just uh, pray that you'd be with Pastor Shane as he brings a message you've laid on his heart today. Lord, just uh, bless each one who's here. Thank you for the change of season and the weather that we're having and for the moisture that's in that snow. And Lord, we just uh, pray that you would just uh, continue to, to bless us here and bless our outreach into Fremont County and Riverton. We just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, church, if you're new here today, my name is Shane. I'm pastor here at First Baptist. And what a blessing it is to serve the saints here. Uh, did everybody have an okay Thanksgiving? Hey, we've got a lot to be thankful for. I love that middle song, Jesus, thank you. We were once enemies of God. And now we're seated at the table of God himself by the grace of Jesus Christ. That's amen worthy, isn't it? All right. Well, hey, brothers and sisters, we've got one last uh, time in what we're calling our series is A Good King Goes to War. A Good King Goes to War. And then we're going to uh, spend a special series in Christmas uh, in anticipation of Jesus entering this earth as the the baby child, and um, in that meantime, I wanted to finish with an encouraging sermon for us today as, as the, the Lord walks towards the cross. We saw the last few weeks that Jesus has now arrived in Jerusalem, and he came to this big fanfare where they were celebrating him as king. And then we saw that as, as Jesus walks in and, and as he is going to war against, you guys remember, what does Jesus go to war against? Satan, sin, right? Satan, sin, and death. Satan, sin, and death. He's going to conquer those three on our behalf as he walks closer to the end of this week and his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. I got a question for you as we brace for this next passage. How many of you have ever been ice fishing? Ever been ice fishing? Is it ever? Have you ever gone ice fishing and been a little nervous to step on that ice? 
Now, all the time. I hear the all the time. And there's not really a good way to tell whether the ice is ready for you or not, yes? Until you take a step on it. Well, I'll never forget when I was a little kid, I remember going ice fishing with my family, actually out at Boyson often. And I remember my grandfather had gone with me. And as a kid, um, I... I really didn't think things through, and so one of those it was one of those times where I just kind of sprinted out onto the ice before very many had, had uh, checked it, and luckily, I didn't fall through, but what I did do is I fell flat on my bum as a little kid, and it was super embarrassing in front of whole, my whole family, and I'll never forget, my grandfather would tell this story to me over and over and over. My feeding wasn't sure, and I ran out and clearly had done this to myself, jumped out on slick ice and fallen. And my grandfather, good man, he runs to me to try to help. And, and uh, I turned to him and I said, what are you looking at, mister? And I remember as a small kid, my family would never let me forget that when I had fallen and I'm out of embarrassment, I, I bit my grandfather's head off for trying to help me. I think steps of faith are kind of touchy for us like that, aren't they? Moments where we are walking out into the unsure and not knowing where we're going or, or what we have to trust in the character of God. We have to trust in faith. In fact, many of you today, did you know you displayed a massive uh, example of faith today? How many of you made sure to check your chairs to make sure they could hold your weight? Did you guys turn around and just, you, do, you just sat down, didn't you? You assumed that that chair was going to catch you. Faith is a lot like that, isn't it? Faith is a lot like that. And just like ice, if we don't, we have to oftentimes go on it and drill a hole to see how deep it goes. Well, when we are caught by the Lord Jesus, a lot of times we don't know until we've driven down into the hole of God's grace and we've seen how he has caught us every step of the way. Amen. Well, let's, let's pick up. What we're going to see is a tough passage of Scripture. We've been in two really difficult passages of Scripture. If you remember last week, Jesus the King calls out hypocrites, and he uses this example of a fig tree, and we see that Jesus curses this fig tree because it was saying it was something that it was not. And then we see the temple in Jerusalem was saying something that it was not. It's saying it was full of life when it was not full of life, but instead full of man's selfishness. We're going to look at today the second part to this fig tree, uh, the, the, the fig tree cursing conversation. Let's read, picking up in Mark eleven twenty one through 22. It says, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Have faith in God. As we continue in verse 23, truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespass. So this is a tough passage of Scripture that has been, um, I would say, uniquely abused often. Uniquely abused often. Because how many of you, as you were reading that, the first thing in your head was, I'm going to pray and ask and believe that God's going to give me a new car. 
Now, a lot of people have taken that passage to mean if I just believe hard enough, if I just have enough faith, that God will give me anything I ask. But the intriguing part is the context of this passage. It comes right after Jesus looks at the temple, and everybody's there at the temple for their own reasons, their own selfish reasons. They're there to gain whatever they can off of the people of God coming and trying to have relationship with him. And so selfishness was just shown to be something that Jesus literally curses. And so the encouragement here in this second part of the conversation cannot mean that we should come to Jesus like he's Santa Claus and like he's going to give us whatever we want whenever we ask it. So we have to look at the context and we have to ask, what does this passage mean? What does this passage mean? It's a calling. It's a calling to a confident, a confident faith. It starts when Jesus, when Peter points out, hey, that fig tree that you cursed is now withered. Jesus turns and he says what? Have faith in God. Have faith in God. He looks there. Have faith in God. I just think this, this, is, this is the, the presupposition as we enter into this idea of asking God big things and having confidence that he can answer. See, our king, as he's going to war, what he is doing now is he's he calls for trust and confidence for the believer in his authority and power, in Jesus' authority and power. He calls all of us as believers to have a confidence and a trust in the power of God. How many of you would count yourself as confident people? Obviously no one because nobody raised their hand, right? Right? There, there, a lot of us, I think, there's a lot of unsurety today where we walk around with a lack of confidence. I want to propose to you today that Jesus wants to, specifically from this passage, create a people that's not arrogant and not doubtful, but instead something entirely different, a confident people in faith. Can we learn to be confident if we understand who we are following in Jesus? What do you think, church? So the king calls us to a confidence in his authority and power. And it's important as we begin to talk about faith, there's kind of a, a vague general understanding of faith today. You see it on bumper, bumper stickers. Uh, it's just have faith. You ever, anybody ever told you just have faith? I want to tell you that that's garbage. You know why? Because faith is only as good as what it is in. Faith is only as good as what it is in. Right? If we just have general, vague faith, I don't even know what that means. But you know that we can confidently see at the end of this week, Jesus is going to conquer sin and Satan and death on our behalf. Can we have confidence in him? Yes. See, our faith is not generally just this idea of making blind leaps of faith. But we know that our leaps of faith are going to be caught by the Savior of the world who conquered death on our behalf. <clears throat> And so this can lead us. It is the basis of absolute confidence in, in God when Jesus calls us to have faith in God. I want you to notice here as we talk about this, he does not say to have general faith. He also doesn't say have faith in yourself. Anybody ever encourage you to have faith in yourself? Trust yourself more. Anybody read the self-help books that tell you to have faith in yourself? I'm here to tell you that that is not a good way forward. Instead, Jesus says, have faith in God. Have faith in God. 
doesn't say have faith in technology. I think many of us keep looking at our phones hoping that it's going to give us some version of hope that it never does. How many of you look at news thinking that it's going to give you some type of information that you need to have? And so you're looking with your faith, you're reaching out, you're hoping that there's going to be some type of organization that's going to fix things. Some political party or some politician that's going to fix things. We put our faith in a lot of different things, don't we? Hoping that they're going to make things better. How many of you like to place your faith in greater control over your life? There's no control freaks here, are there? I mean that sarcastically, right? We would all love greater control over our children, number one, over our wallets, number two, over the world, number three. How many of you would, would uh, happily self-elect yourself as president because you know exactly what this country is supposed to do here forward? <laughs> There's some honest people out there, but you know we've all thought that, right? We like to think that we have faith. How many of you just have this faith in the idea that if you just had more time, if you had another day in the week, that you could trust in yourself to get everything done you need to get done? Would that work out? Yeah, time is not something that we can even place. In our wealth, I think many of us look at our savings accounts or our 401ks and we say, if I just save enough, have you ever said to yourself, if I just won the lottery, then I would do dot, 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 dot. That's trusting in wealth, isn't it? And many of us, uh, we don't need wisdom because we have this thing called the internet. And the internet is always correct. It's not true, right? We can't have faith in the Internet because, man, there's been a lot of incredible lies propagated by the Internet, yes? And we cannot even trust in our own good works. The Bible tells us that we cannot be good enough to be accepted by God. That's why Jesus had to intervene. There was nothing I could do to make myself good enough to be accepted by God, and so my faith, my trust has to be in Jesus with absolute confidence with absolute confidence. It's interesting, as we look at this passage, we need to note that the second part of this conversation seems to part from the discussion on the fig tree, and it becomes more about how Jesus taught through the, the fig tree. See, Jesus, with incredible authority, curses this fig tree, and it responds by withering and fading. See, Jesus taught not like other people, didn't he? He taught like he knew something nobody else knew. Because he did. Because he did. He knew the Father. He had intimate relationship with God. He was God with us. And so he didn't teach as other teachers teach. Therefore, brothers and sisters, I want to submit to you that we shouldn't walk in faith like other people walk in faith. Jesus taught with an authority and a power and then calls us as his people to walk in his authority and in his power with an absolute confidence. When we trust and share, we don't share on the proposition of opinion or on this idea that we are just one of many options. Christianity is not just one of many options. It is the only way, according to Jesus, to be made right with God the Father. There are no other religions that will lead you to right relationship with God. Jesus' claim was exclusive. It was inclusive because it invited everybody, but it was exclusive in that there is no other way. It is, Jesus is truly the only way to have right relationship with God. 
And he calls us to a confident walk as believers, a miraculous walk with, as if you will, with God. One that it seems like every day there's an ongoing conversation with God. How many of you would say that you have a daily connection and conversation with God? That you have your own inside jokes with God? Anybody? That you have your own ongoing conversation because you know he's pointing out some of your sin and you kind of go like, oh, God, don't poke at that one. But we can have a confidence that we walk with a God who's engaged with us every single day. That's a confident, miraculous faith in God, a walk with him. We can be like the disciples in that they were having conversations. They were asking questions. I love as we do our tough questions class and as we're at 9 a.m. on Sundays, if you guys ever want to join us, please do. But we're sitting and we're just asking tough questions and having a conversation with our maker and saying, what did you mean here? What does this mean in your scriptures? And so we can have this conversation and be a lifelong learner at the feet of Jesus. How many of you think about when you wake up in the morning, you go, man, I cannot wait for what my king is going to teach me today. It changes how you view the world. It changes. Many of us, have, how, let's be honest, how many of you have a tough time getting out of bed? But how many of you know that if you've got something looking to look forward to, it makes it a little easier to get up, get that cup of coffee, and move on, right? You can with confidence know that if you've got relationship with Jesus, you've got something to look forward to today. You got something to look forward to do, do today. You can get up with a confidence that says, yes, I cannot wait to see where my God leads me, where my God leads me. And so that leads us to this idea. I think many of us have a wrong understanding of what confidence really is. I think confidence is not arrogance, and there's a clear difference between those two. Would you agree? confidence and arrogance. There's a clear difference. And I just wanted to point out a few of those differences. So Jesus, when he teaches, he teaches with confidence. He expects us to respond to his kingship with confidence. So let's talk about the difference between arrogance and confidence. Arrogance compensates. Confidence doesn't. We're going to see this in Jesus as he uh, later on has a conversation with the Pharisees. He doesn't have to explain how he does what he does. He just does it because he has the authority to. Any of you remember what you, when you asked your parents, but why? What did they say? The worst answer on the face of the planet, because I said so, right? Anybody heard that from God lately? There was this guy in the book of Job that heard that from God lately, God back then. It was because I said so, because I have made it. See, God's power, Jesus' teaching and the word of God doesn't have to explain itself or compensate or try to be more impressive. It just is impressive. It just is life-changing. God's word just is powerful enough to save the hearer. Isn't that amazing? And we don't have to try to compensate for that. I think a lot of times when we're having conversations with people about the gospel, we have to kind of like, you ever feel like you have to soften the blow? Like you have to make it a little bit more approachable? I, I want to free you from that. See, confidence is, this is just the way that it is. And I don't fully grasp it, but I sit at the feet of Jesus every day because it's a miracle. The fact that God saved me is a miracle. And I don't fully know why yet, but I know he did. And I can have absolute confidence in that. That, that doesn't make me arrogant. When people tell me, are you, going, you know, are you going to heaven? Yes, I know that. Why? Because it doesn't depend on me. It depended on Jesus. That's a confidence. That's not an arrogance. I, I remember one time I was teaching 
at a camp, and I remember as I was saying that Jesus is the, he claims to be the exclusive way, the only way to God the Father, and I remember a young lady stood up in the middle of camp and started to argue with me. She said, that can't be. How could we look at the world and say that we know something they don't? I said, easy. I'm saying I'm pretty dumb, but I know the guy who does know something that they don't. Jesus does. And he proved that via his death on the cross. That doesn't make me arrogant. That makes me confident. Arrogance justifies. Confidence accepts. Arrogance justifies. You ever double down on a bad decision? And then you try to explain in your head why you think it's okay? And you have this long list of why and what makes that okay? Many of us have that dialogue, but see the confidence in Christ accepts, look, I'm a sinner. I'm not a good person, and I'm in need of God's grace. I'm going to accept, not try to explain or justify my sin, not trying to justify my sin. See, I'm confident in the acceptance of my Lord. I don't run away from him because I know he accepts me because he's faithful and just to forgive my sins. For those who ask, see, I can confidently do that. I don't have to try to justify my evils. I know that I'm evil and an enemy of God if it wasn't for Jesus. I don't have to justify. There's a real peace in that, isn't there? Anybody exhausted by trying to justify yourself to others? Jesus didn't have to do that. Arrogance is insecure at the heart, and confidence has peace has peace. Arrogance is insecure. Have you ever poked a hole in somebody who's obviously being arrogant? Or maybe that was you. Somebody deflated you, and then you, you began to see how really, truly insecure you really are. It took one little argument. See, confidence has peace. I don't have to be right. I know the one who is right. I know Jesus. Arrogance is easily defeated, but confidence in Christ is a far different thing. Arrogance seeks to win, and confidence loves. Where are my married couples here? You know you can win an argument and lose at the same time. Anybody there? You ever won that argument, but you know you lost? See, the difference between arrogance, it seeks to win, but confidence tells us to love. Confidence in Christ says that out of the love that Jesus has given me, I can love here. So I don't have to win other people. I don't have to win a debate. I don't have to win an argument because I'm confident that Jesus is sitting on the throne of all of existence, and he doesn't need little old me to defend him because he's the roaring lion who can easily defend his truth and his way. I just need to walk in it. Too many times Christians have felt like they have to argue people into the kingdom of heaven. I just don't think that happens not by human wisdom, but instead by confidence in Christ. Arrogance seeks to win an argument, but confidence loves. I think of 1 Corinthians 13 too, it reminisces of this moving of mountains that we're about to get into. So before we go into Mark 11, if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 13 too tells us, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all the faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Have not love, I am nothing. So we talk about that removing. See, confidence loves. Arrogance tries to win. 
Mark 11, 23, as we continue on, and then we get to this particularly hard passage of Scripture. Mark 11, 23, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. How many of you have moved a mountain? Anybody, can you raise your hand? Just let me see. Anybody moved a mountain? Not with an excavator, okay? Or a skid steers don't count. Some of you probably think you moved mountains yesterday with the snow. That, that's not what I'm saying. We're talking, I want you to look out at the winds, the Wind River Mountains, and say, okay, I want you to go ahead and move over to the right. I like you by the sun closer. How many of you would see that mountain move? See, I don't, I don't believe that that's exactly what this passage is talking about. It's figurative language. We've talked about this in Sunday school before, but it's really important to know when is Scripture being literal and when is it being figurative, and then what's the purpose of the passage? What's the timeless principle? What's the timeless principle? For here, it's figurative language. We always go to the carnal mind. I think when we read this, we think God should give me, according to this, this promise is saying that God should give me whatever I want. But it doesn't say that in the passage. In fact, let's look at uh, this idea instead of the physical expectation. Jesus is giving us a spiritual revelation. He's not just giving us a physical expectation that we should expect God to meet our every need, our every need and our every demand and our every want, but instead he's giving us a, a spiritual revelation. In fact, as we remember, the context is he just got done showing us that we shouldn't come to church trying to get what we want and try to benefit off of others. The, he flipped tables, and I could throw my podium again, but that was kind of loud last time. So that can't, clearly that can't be the call for us. And as we think about, think about in history, think about Christian history, even think about in the, New, in the New Testament, no apostle nor Jesus literally moved mountains, did they? So that can't be what this means. How much more uh, will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? I think of a Luke eleven thirteen. And it tells us a little bit more about this idea or this principle of asking God for something. It says, Luke eleven thirteen. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the... Does he say whatever they want? No, it says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? To those who ask him. So there's this important principle as we look at what does he mean by mountains? What does he mean by mountains? We need to understand. At this time, when you looked at a mountain, there wasn't a nice little wavy road that went up over mountains. Anybody love the mountain drive? Probably not right now, right? But we have this thing called the combustion engine that makes passing over mountains a lot easier. How many of you have walked over a mountain? Some of you? Harold, how did that go for you? You've walked over a mountain. It was hard, right? And so when we look at mountains, what is Jesus talking about here? Mountains are like barriers to where we're trying to go. I want you to see this. It is not easy to tackle a mountain. Mountains are hard to pass on foot, especially in this time. Barriers that are not easily passed. And I want you to think about this. If he's referring it to a barrier, what was the... The, what are different barriers that stand between us and where we're trying to go? Where are we trying to get to? Who are we trying to get to? 
reconciliation with God of the universe, right? That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be right with God. So what stands in our way? I want you to throw out what in, in your estimation, what are some of the biggest barriers that stand between you? What are the mountains that stand between you and getting to God? Yourself. Okay, that's a big one. What else? Desires. What else stands between you and getting into relationship with the God of the universe? Our sin. Our fear. I heard that. I had that written down. I have pride. I have fear. How many of you have, have uh, had such a hard time with people that you just don't like church because there's people there? Right? So sometimes even people can be this barrier that, that prevents us from passing towards God on our journey to the Lord. Fear can definitely be that. How many hurt is that for you? That you have a hurt in your life, that something happened, that you had such pain for, that that becomes a barrier to your relationship with God. It becomes a mountain that stands between your desire to go to him in his word and daily. It robs you from this running to you, this expectation of faith that we can have in Jesus. Selfishness. I think sometimes our own self-diagnosed intelligence can be a barrier. Laziness. Any, any lazy folks out there like me? Laziness can sometimes be a barrier. Focus can be a barrier. Sickness can be a barrier. And so any excuse you would give that would keep you from reading God's word and being with his people, like snowy roads, can be a barrier. Amen? How many of you prayed on your way to church? Dear Lord, I know I can trust my driving, but not that person's. But I want you to see that the highest and truest barrier to our walk with God, and he follows up with this, elaborating and showing us that this was on Jesus' mind. If you look at verse 25, what does he use as an example for a mountain? And whenever you stand praying, you see it? Oh, it's not coming up. But to forgive, forgive. Forgiveness is one of the highest mountains to be moved, amen? Both the forgiveness of our sin, that mountain had to be moved. By grace, through faith, it was moved for you and me. That was a mountain that was moved over, thrown to the sea, dealt with, satisfied on our behalf. That was a mountain moved. See, and then that turns out to, he says, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father who also is in heaven may forgive you your trespass. I want you to see that here, forgiveness is a really difficult thing, isn't it? Any of you, you would know if there's somebody in your life that you have continually had to choose every day to pick up forgiveness for them. Anybody there? You've been wronged, and you still wake up years and years and years later, and you have to be like, today, Lord, I am choosing to forgive them. Because forgiveness is not a one-time deal, but it's something that you have to choose and pick up every day, huh? Just like when you put your clothes on in the morning, you have to put on that, that forgiveness because it becomes a mountain between you and God, between you and other people. So here Jesus is, is showing us and, and displaying to us what is the big mountain standing before us. It was unforgiveness, and it's been removed to the sea. Amen? Whatever you ask in prayer. I want you to think about putting ourselves in the frame of mind. We just got a look at what the temple, what church life was like. And you have a lot of people 
that are gaining off of other people. And the temple and the church look like this kind of place of market. And uh, here we see that there was a culture, and we're going to continue to see that, that the Pharisees were making God unattainable and uninterested in the everyday man. Have you ever been some, around some religious person like that? God's not really interested in you if only you were as holy as me then maybe he would be interested. And so I want you to see that Jesus here, he's tackling this idea, whatever you ask in prayer. See, God is interested in the everyday prayer of removal of barriers between you and him. Instead of us coming to church and saying, you have to do this and you have to do that in a particular way or you're disqualified, not holy enough. You're never enough. I, you know, I had an interesting, I told you guys, I brace you guys for Thanksgiving, but I also brace myself for Thanksgiving because I know I'm going to have family conversations. And we had this conversation, we were talking around the table, a couple of us guys, and I just, we were sitting there and talking about the, the unique nature of God's grace, that it doesn't demand that you change in order to receive it, but instead, it's the grace itself that transforms you into a new creation. And so if you're here and you're struggling with addiction, God's call to you is not clean up your life and then come to him. His call to you is come to him. Ask right now and he will move mountains. Some of you have those things in your life. And I just, I remember my father-in-law saying, hey, if, if there was a stoner and, and, and he, was, he was big on smoking weed, I'm not going to tell him you need to stop smoking weed before you come to church. I thought, that, that's an interesting way to put it, father-in-law. but said, come to church and let God begin to transform you from the inside out. The prerequisite isn't that you quit doing bad things first. It's that you come and be changed by the grace of Lord Jesus first. We don't want to create a bunch of good people on their way to hell. I'm not interested in that. I want to, I want to see us preach a gospel that changes people from the inside out. And that is the gospel of Jesus. It can move mountains. It can move mountains. And for those of you, how many of you have struggled with doubt on your salvation? Is there some real honest people here? Have you ever doubted your salvation? You ask the question, am I saved? Am I saved? Did you know the Bible knew that we were going to struggle with some of those types of questions? The book of 1 John is written so that you might have confidence in your salvation. If you are one who struggles with doubt, would you pick up the book of 1 John and read through those precious words that show us that we can confidently proclaim that we are saved, not because we're great people and we're always faithful and we're the ones who step out when nobody else does. We're not the Davids of the story. Jesus is the David of our story, isn't he? So we can be confident in our salvation if we've trusted and believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. We are saved confidently. So, if I'm a Christian and I stub my toe and I curse or I tell a lie, that doesn't negate my salvation. My salvation was never in me. It was in Christ alone. When I mess up, brothers and sisters, some of you, if you're like the rest of us, you've messed up, haven't you? I want to tell you that your salvation doesn't rely on you. It relied on Jesus on the cross. And that day when you became a son or a daughter of God, he's not in the business of kicking you out in the family. And so we see mountains moved. That's a figurative language. Those mountains are barriers. And forgiveness is the highest barrier that stands 
between us and God. And then there's this interesting principle of without doubt, confidence over doubt. It's important to understand that now that we're saved, even if we doubt it doesn't diminish our salvation, but it does keep some barriers in place, yes? When we don't walk in faith, when we don't trust God in this specific area of our life, it keeps a barrier in place, not because God isn't ready with arms wide open, but because we're not walking toward him. He's there at any moment to throw open his hands, but doubt keeps us. It keeps those barriers in place. Let me talk about a couple of those barriers, what they could be, doubt. Anybody have negative self-talk in your mind or in your heart? Have you ever noticed that negative self-talk tends to be in the third person? You can't do this. You're a failure. Notice it's not, I'm a failure. A lot of times you hear that in your head and your heart. You know, I want to tell you that that's, that's the world, the flesh, and the enemy that are accusing you. He's the great accuser, right? And so when you have that third person thinking, you can't do this, you're a failure, that doubt starts to well up inside of you. You need to know that that's not of God. Because what did God speak over you? You're a child of God. And so when you start to hear that you accusation language in your head, please tell me I'm not the only one that has these dialogues in my head. Okay, good. Everybody was looking a little uncomfortable. But you can respond with I language because you're telling the accuser who you are. So you respond to you can't do this or you can't open the word or you're not going to understand scripture or you're not going to be able to follow God. You can turn and say, I am a child of God. Jesus told me so. So you respond to that third person language with the I am a child of God. That is the battle of identity that this world is presenting over you. Believing and presenting the gospel without a doubt. And so that also, that feeling when you're talking or sharing the gospel, you start sharing with Jesus, and you kind of feel that sense of like, almost like you're ashamed, like you're scared to share it. Anybody else? Or is that just your pastor? But you can turn and say, this is the truth. I rely, my confidence is in Jesus. And so you can dispel that doubt. You can move the mountains of doubt in your heart and in your mind when you present the gospel without a doubt, without a doubt. Not in arrogance, but in confidence. The other thing I think that we see as far as doubts that we struggle with, how many of you have a tendency to make mountains out of molehills? Anybody? Mountains out of molehills? A little bit of snow, for example? That's a joke. You know, it's interesting. I think the COVID era had this really interesting effect on us as a society. And I think we tend to walk in doubt and we tend to justify lack of pursuit of God and his people because we just, it's this weird thing. It's like the world gave us permission to doubt and we loved that. And so now if there's an excuse for not opening our Bible, if there's an excuse for not meeting with God's people, if there's an excuse for not showing up and and serving in Jesus' name, we're going to find it, and it's going to become our mantra. Anybody of you have those excuses in your head and in your heart? That making a mountain out of molehills, it's almost like you were waiting for an excuse to be divided from God and his people. In fact, the Bible talks about this type of person, the double-minded man. It's he, a double-minded man is someone who covers all of his bases. God, and when you talk to people 
uh, about the gospel in particular. Have you ever noticed that some, there's a lot of people out there that call themselves Christians, that Jesus is just kind of a contingency plan? You know what I mean? It's kind of like my parachute. I'm going to go through this life, and I'm going to call myself a Christian and say that I believe and trust in Jesus, but I'm not really going to live like it. I'm not going to live as if it's valuable. And so God is really just kind of a contingency plan for me. I would say that that's a form of doubt, being a double-minded man. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. This is James 1, 5 through 8, to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. He's a double-minded man. See, just like you guys walking in today, faith is an act of placing your full weight in the person and work of Jesus. When you came to these chairs, you didn't check if they would catch you. See, in in order to not be doubting double-minded men and women, we need to be people who place our full weight in God. And this is not a new struggle. Uh, you guys know a, a man in Scripture called Timothy? There's a first and a second Timothy. You know who I, I like to call Timothy? Timid Timothy. Timid Timothy. Because Timid Timothy was constantly struggling with doubt, wasn't he? And Paul was constantly addressing this, this source of doubt Timid Timothy was going to struggle with. But Timothy was the leader of the Ephesus church. He was the pastor, if you will. So, not a new problem, but one that can be overcome because God can move mountains. Can God move the mountains standing before you today? By the way, the goal of the enemy is to keep doubt in the mind and heart of the believer. We live in a world today that loves to, to just cause doubt but never cause hope or confidence in anything. And we saw this come out over and over. What was the message? You can't trust anything. You can't rely on any truth. In fact, there is no truth. Because you find a doctor, I'm going to find the opposing doctor. Right? And so we had this time where it just seemed like relative truth reigned. You can't make anything factual. You can't make factual statements. The enemy wants to reign over us as the church, telling us that you can't really say that to people. You can't say that Jesus is the only way. You can't say that people are full of sin and need a Savior. They've told you that, haven't they? Maybe that just winds up in my mailbox. But the goal of the enemy is to keep you in doubt. There is truth, and it is in Christ. And Christ can be trusted. So it makes me think again of ice fishing. The only way to know whether the ice is thick enough to step on is to step on it and, and drill. Some of us need to see just how thick the support of God's grace is underneath our feet. So what? Would you be bold in Christ? Would you be bold in Christ? Maybe some of you need that bolster and confidence. You know that he can, he can catch you. He can and has caught you already. You are made right with God if you've placed your faith in Jesus. Would you be a mountain-moving people? Would you remove the barriers between you and God, both you and God, and then also advocate for the, move, the removal of mountains for other people in their lives? Are you an advocate for the removal of barriers between God and people? By the way, that's called the high priesthood. 
Did you know that all of you turn to your neighbor and say, did you know you're a high, you're a priest? That's out of Peter says that we're a, a holy nation, a, a priesthood, a people for God's own possession. And you know what the, the ultimate role of a priest is to advocate for right or restored relationship with God. You're a priest and you thought some of you were butchers or garbage men or stay at home moms. Nope. You're a priest, according to the Bible, and you get to be a barrier-removing agent in this world today between God and men. Choose confidence over arrogance and doubt. Well, these are my old questions, but my new questions are, um, what maintains barriers? Uh, what mountains, excuse me, are in the way of my faith walk? So if you're in a small group, would you just maybe write this down? What mountains or barriers are in the way of my faith walk? What mountains or barriers are in the way of my faith walk? And then how do I choose confidence over arrogance and doubt? How do I choose confidence over arrogance and doubt? I'm going to ask our elders to come up, and, and uh, we're going to have a time of giving and response. If you're here today and you've struggled with doubt, would you come and talk to me? Would you come and pray with me? If you're here today and you have no confidence in Jesus, would you come talk to me? And if you're here today and you haven't professed faith in Jesus, the Bible says in Romans 10:9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, it says you will be saved. Would you, if you have not done that yet, to, yet, would you come and talk to me? Would you bow your heads and let's, Let's do some business with God. Tell him what are those barriers and ask him to move them. And as you do, I'll have the elders go and pass out the the plates. One barrier removing thing, or I guess a way to tear down one of your idols, is to be somebody who is a giver. That's how we defeat our faith in money over Jesus. God calls us to be givers. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we want to be a people who have placed our full weight, the weight of our lives, the weight of our worries, the weight of our concerns, the weight of our doubt in the completed cross of Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a mountain-moving people that ask you, Lord Jesus, to remove any barriers or boundaries between you and us and between others and you. Help us to be gospel lights in this season. As we go into Christmas, God, we just want to behold you And remember, Lord, that you didn't leave us on this earth, but instead you entered this earth as a small child to begin your work of reconciliation. God, we praise you and we thank you. And we, as God's people, say, Amen.